What's up, guys? Welcome to The Narrative with me, Samantha Weaver, and my co-host, Asia Porter. Hey everyone, and thank you for tuning into The Narrative. Today, we are really excited to get into season two and start our discussions on community interventions. So as we stressed in the previous episode, we do not have to just kind of go along inside and wait for change to happen. We can be that change. Um, We just have to be impactful and active members in our community. So with no further ado, we would love to introduce you to our amazing guests and two very active, impactful members in society. Um, Would you all like to say hello? Hi, my name's Abaki. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of the STL Reentry Fund, and I also work for the Social Policy Institute at Washington University in St. Louis. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you all for having me. My name is Jamil Spann, and I currently live in Nashville, Tennessee. I am a participant coordinator, or the participant coordinator for the Nashville Community Bail Fund. Yeah, so we'd like to thank you guys for coming. Um, So yeah, as you guys may know from all our promo and everything, today we're talking about mutual aid and its role in promoting racial justice. Um, now, I know a lot of our visitor, vis- listeners have probably heard of mutual aid in like some shape or form, but I feel like it's also one of those things that gets like tossed around a lot, and there may not be a completely clear understanding of what it is. So I'm going to try to lay it down like this. So mutual aid is actually, it's a lot of things, and I'm going to try to describe it the best way that I can. Um, it is community members networking together, taking responsibility for caring for each other, and making sure we have what we need to survive. Um, basically so that we can all push back against systems that oppress us. Um, It's definitely based in solidarity and no hierarchies. Um, And this is not something new. It has existed particularly in black and brown and indigenous communities uh, for a very long time. And essentially it's just a lot of relationship building, which is definitely something that we need right now. And is also the reason why we're super grateful that you guys are here joining us in on this conversation. So kind of just getting into our first question, can you each of you guys kind of speak about how you got involved with mutual aid work or in other words, like why is this type of work important to you? Um, and like, just how were you introduced? I think for me personally, I mean, like you said, mutual aid, even though the term seems like it's relatively new or has been kind of growing in popularity in the last few years, especially during the pandemic, I feel like, um, I have participated in mutual aid type supports my entire life. Um, I'm Native American. A lot of Native communities have um, mutual aid systems, even if we don't call them those things. Uh, So hosting fundraisers for people at powwows or other community events who are graduating who need money um, or, uh, uh, you know, just smaller, um, I guess you honestly could call them illegal economy things, but selling things to support other people. I mean, these things have been part of Native communities for a very, very long time, just making sure everyone's taken care of. Um, So I think that's kind of where my passion for mutual aid uh, came from. And then with the STL Reentry Fund specifically, uh, I previously worked for the Prison Education Project at WashU, um, which offers undergraduate education to people incarcerated at Missouri Eastern Correctional Center. And I was one of the leaders of the reentry program. And one of the things that we were seeing was that a lot of our students, when they were released, 
um, needed direct cash assistance, not necessarily a social worker, not necessarily um, help finding a job or help finding um, a place to live. Obviously, those things were important too, but some students had those taken care of. But a lot of people just needed money because if you leave prison earning, you know, $25 per month, how, how are you supposed to put down uh, a, a direct a deposit for your apartment, for example, or how are you supposed to sign up for healthcare if you need that? Um, so for the STL reentry fund specifically, that's kind of um, seeing that need for direct cash assistance uh, uh, kind of came from that. As far as how I got into, uh, I guess, mutual aid work is I got lucky. I, I just, I don't think I would be being honest if I didn't put it like that. I um I graduated from WashU this past May. Um, and I didn't have a lot of job prospects. Um, I'm not sure if that's it was largely due to me being a formerly caged person. I did 13 years in prison, and um, I don't know if I can say legitimately that I'm a prison education project alumna, alumni, because I didn't graduate from, um, you know, they had an associate's degree program in place, and I had gotten out like a year before they even established that program. Um, that option, rather, that degree program. So I got out in March 27, 2017, March 23rd. And like I said, I had just did 12 years, nine months, six days. So I didn't really know what the hell I was going to do, to be honest. I, um, but I, I did participate in the WashU PEP. And um, I got a lot of encouragement from the professors and the um, administrators of their program to apply to U College once I got out. And I, I had other ideas, but uh, like I said, I wasn't really um, certain of how my future was gonna unfold. So I just, I applied, um, just I guess moving back a little bit, prior to my incarceration, I was a college student at Fisk University here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I, um, I had accumulated I think it was 78 credit hours. And then I thought I was going to be able to get, be able to use the credit hours that I got in PEP. That didn't turn out to be the case. Just hurdles along the way. But uh, PEP contacts and connections helped me to get my first job in the professional realm, um, which was another uh, a nonprofit, the Alliance for Higher Education in Prison. I did that job for a year. A little over a year, actually. So social justice work was always something that I was um, passionate about. Never thought that I could get into it because I was thinking like more practical and immediate. So I went and got a, a commercial driver's license like six months after I got out. And eventually I was able to get a job that was in manual labor. And that was the Alliance for Higher Education in Prison. But as as it relates to mutual aid work specifically, um, like I said, the job with the, the Nashville Community Bail Fund was just like luck. I had applied for several other jobs here in Nashville in um, the higher education and prison community. Uh, none of those panned out. Um, I was actually applying for a job as a, a reentry coordinator 
with another nonprofit here in Nashville, and they um they went in a different direction, and uh the job with the opportunity with the bail fund came available, and I was I was really um, excited about the opportunity to work with someone who is formerly caged like myself and is like the executive director of the bail fund. So that uh, appealed to me for what I what I would hope would be obvious reasons. And um, yeah, so that's how I got that's how I got involved in mutual aid work. So the bail fund, just in case folks don't know, there are like a whole I don't know exactly how many there are, but there are maybe around a hundred bail funds around the country. And a bail fund is just it's a revolving fund. We pay people's bail who can't afford to um pay the bail themselves. And when their case goes through the legal process, as long as they make their court dates, we get the money back. It goes back in the fund and we can um, make a bail for someone else. So, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to um, ask about because both of you have experience um, working in this kind of realm that is the criminal justice system. And so I just kind of wanted to ask contextualizing mutual aid within the criminal justice system why why are these funds important and how do they mitigate institutional effects such as recidivism um, or barriers after incarceration that you spoke to abaki like what role do they play mm. uh, let me take that one abaki uh the impact of mutual aid as it relates to the bail fund work it um is is uh it's pivotal. It's, and I'll, I'll just put it out there. I think it's very important because uh, institutional efforts to address the needs of marginalized groups are either not in place or don't work. <laughs> let's just call it what, let's just call it what it is, right? So we make bills every day. I think we're at 31 bills this month, and we just launched a campaign yesterday to try to free as many people before the holidays, right? So you'll see situations, I see situations every day where it may take, it might take a whole minute for some magistrate or judge to impose a bail for some astronomical amount that they know people can't afford. And most of the time it's for some uh, low level offense. Like uh, I just seen a, I seen a situation yesterday where a judge post, uh, set a $5,000 bail for someone who was sleeping under the highway underpass, right? Now this person had been called, the police, somebody had, the prosecutor said, the, the uh, district attorney said, hey, uh, well, this person has uh, had several warnings and we um, had several calls to say that you can't sleep there and they know the person is homeless. So the judge, he's sitting there and he's like, well, uh, do you, are you gonna need a court appointed counsel? And uh, of course, the man was like, yes. And he was like, and the judge just laughed, like, of course, this man can't afford attorney of his own. So I'm thinking, well, why in the hell are you sending a $5,000 bill for this person? But this is an example of how the criminal legal system, Asia, as I refer to it, because there is no justice in it. I think that's just, we have to be very intentional with the language we use. And that's why you'll hear me say, 
uh, formerly caged and not formerly incarcerated because I'm like really jaded with these sanitized uh, explanations and ways of using language and it, it just doesn't make sense. So what will happen is you will, if you find yourself in this situation, and I, I like to use that, you will find yourself in a situation where you will, uh, if you can't afford to make a bail, for example, what will happen is that the legal process will either stall or it's just going to make you so frustrated to the word, to the point where you um, plead guilty to something, right? So you get a low-level charge for um, less than a half an ounce of marijuana or trespassing or anything, right? If you can't make the bail, then you have to stay there, right? Now, these charges, the sentence for these charges, you, you are found guilty and you do go to trial. Most of the time, people don't. Over 90% of the time, people don't. You will just have to wait. And then you'll find out that the sentence for this was maybe a year, a year and a half. And you've been there for eight, nine months at this point. And what's so disrespectful about it to me, and this is why I, I really just abhor the language of criminal justice system, is because here in Davidson County and several other places around the country, you can't afford an attorney. The court appoints one to you. And when they say the court, they mean the judge. So the judge will appoint your attorney and hear the case. How about that for a conflict of interest, right? So this attorney who is getting work from the court will um, have a relationship with the judge because the judge is giving them work. So the judge is not going to take it kindly if this attorney is actually practicing the law, like filing about a bail reduction hearing. People sit in jail for on average here in Nashville, um, it's over six months. You'll be sitting there waiting just for the judge to, I mean, just for your attorney who you've never seen, who's never come to see you, to, um, to just file a bail reduction hearing, right? But the judge gave him the job to represent you. So if you're not, if that attorney isn't handling the case as, as the judge would want them to, then they may not get cases appointed to them as regularly. And it's, um, it's really frustrating, and I'll just uh, leave it there for now because I can go off on tangents about the injustice of the legal system all day. Yeah, the only thing I'll add um, in in relation to the importance of mutual aid during reentry and for formerly incarcerated or formerly caged people, as Jamil said, um, is that one of the things we tried to be really intentional about when we created the STL reentry fund is to eliminate barriers that already exist for accessing uh, care. So for example, there's a lot of really great reentry support organizations in St. Louis that oftentimes just don't have the capacity to serve everyone or have a lot of restrictions like, um, we'll give you a free bus pass, but only if you have a resume and are proving that you're applying for a job or we'll let you live here, but um, you're, you're, if you have a daughter, they can live here. But if you have a son who's over the age of 13, he can't live with you or your pet can't live with you. So there's all these restrictions to simply having access to, you know, housing, healthcare, transportation, really basic needs. Um, so we don't have any of those requirements. We actually don't even have people prove that they're formally incarcerated or, you know, prove, quote unquote, what their need is. We just believe that when people request money, that they need it. 
Um, so one of the things that I think is really powerful about mutual aid is when we get donations from people, we redistribute on a weekly basis. So pretty quickly we can get money out to people, um, who need rental assistance, who need utility assistance, of course, because of the really fucked up system we live in, as Jamil was just, just illustrating the need for, for direct cash assistance far exceeds what we're able to redistribute. But um, I think that without having these barriers of proving that you need something, proving that you're, I don't know, a good person, essentially, um, uh, without having those restrictions, it's much easier to get, get care to people and is less uh, disrespectful, I guess, in terms of just saying, you say you need, you have needs, you have, you need rental assistance. Okay, we believe you here's money. We're not going to ask you to prove where you live. We're not going to, we're going to give the money directly to you, not to your landlord. Um, so we really tried to eliminate those barriers and try to, uh, um, yeah, just have that be a place of intervention of trying to remove those hierarchies as us giving you money versus community members, just re helping community members redistribute to other community members in need. Um, yeah. And that's, that's why I think the, the reentry collective is so dope and and in some ways even um meeting the needs of people more immediately than bail funds right so take this for example not only do people land themselves in situations where they have to make hard choices like just yesterday um we we got a referral so we get referrals from either family members or from attorneys to make bills, we got a referral from a person who had no criminal convictions whatsoever, uh, 22 years old, young black male, and he um, he has a $5,000 bail. Now, our limit at this point, we have made it to, it's a $2,000 limit, but we consider, you know, bills that are set higher than that. In any case, he didn't have a criminal history, hardly. Or he didn't have any criminal convictions. He had been charged with things for a while. So, you know, if he's only 20, he's been charged with things since he's 17. But it was just like uh, the charge was um, unlawful possession of a handgun. Now, the I don't know the circumstances of the case, but we ultimately made the bail. But this person is working. And the family who we get the referral from, the family members are saying, uh, well, the attorney, um, she she made the referral and she said that the family is having to make a decision on whether or not they're going to buy Christmas gifts or bail this family member out. Right. And um, they would have had to pay a bail bondsman five hundred dollars, 10 percent of that to get out. And he has a, a pregnant fiance and it's. It's just so many other factors that will just really tug at your heartstrings and help you to understand that it's no way that money bail is necessary. We we have the numbers. The bail fund, we are part of a bail fund network, and it's all the other bail funds in the country that want to be a part of this network. And the facts are that 94% of people show back up to court without you know, being rearrested again, a new charge. 50% of the people that we make bills for are never prosecuted at all, right? So that number 
that 50% of not being prosecuted at all is going to go up the longer people sit in jail and just, you know, don't have the money to get out, don't have the money to fight their case and, you know, pay for an attorney. But the situation, be, the reason why I said the reentry collective is in some ways a lot more effective. It doesn't have all of these bureaucratic um, red tape to to make people come up with reasons to explain this and present paperwork because you, you have to understand that these people are mostly poor, right? They don't have access to Wi-Fi or um, smartphones. A lot of other people that we make bills for don't even have a phone. So I'm interacting and engaging with their family members to provide court dates. And a lot of them, if you can even imagine such a thing, have a landline. So I have to actually call and not send a text because we I find myself in a situation where I don't want to feel like I'm uh, like surveilling people and harassing them with texts and calls like you need to come to court because then we operate like a, a bail bonding company and we definitely don't want to do that. And uh, I know how it feels to be on the other side. So if I'm calling someone's 80 something year old grandparent on a landline, and explaining to them that, hey, your uh, your nephew or your son or your daughter has court, that's, you just don't want to overdo it and be co-opting the system, becoming a uh, an extra extension of surveillance. You see what I mean? That's a, that's why I like the reentry collective, because people can, people can make a request in a time of need and, um, have their request, hopefully. It's basically the community themselves, and they just redistributing the money as soon as they get it. Whereas we have over $640,000 right now tied up with the clerk's office, right? The clerk's office has the money. The case is either closed or pending closed. It's already been dismissed by the judge, but we have to wait weeks to get the money back, right? It's, um, it's really frustrating when you when you learn different layers of it. We just won a lawsuit last week because the the judges came up with a rule. This was in the law. The judges came up with a rule that said if a third party makes a bail for someone, then you're responsible for that person's fines and fees. So when their case, if the bail was $5,000 and that person had $2,000 in court costs and fines and fees, you can get your money back minus, you can get the five grand back minus the fines and fees that they owe. And it was like, wait a minute, we're not going to survive as a bail fund if we have to pay everybody's fines and fees. So I um, I work with, well, actually, I'm on the board of advisors for another nonprofit organization called Choosing Justice Initiative. And we basically provide pro bono legal services and emphasize client-centered representation because a lot of times attorneys will just do what they feel is best for you and be really prescriptive in this very stress and anxiety-ridden process of going through the criminal legal system, and it's it's really so many different layers to it. I can explain them all in just a thirty-five-minute uh, podcast, but just some context. No, I definitely appreciate you providing that context because I think that's something a lot of our listeners don't 
know about. Of course, like the people in charge don't want to tell us about how things are actually working out for real people and how they're treating real people. So I appreciate that both you guys emphasized um, how both of your areas of work have to operate as the social safety net for people because our government fails to address the actual needs or people's actual needs. Um, so I really appreciate, Jamil, how you outlined some of the issues within the clerk's office. And I'm interested, Abaki, of any limitations that have um, that you've seen within your own work within the St. Louis Reentry Collective, maybe just like in how it's run or anything that you've um, had to deal with with working with people. Sure. I mean, I feel like the biggest limitation is that um, the need will always far, far exceed um, what we're able to redistribute. I mean, our, our average donation is $35. So it's not like it's a bunch of rich people giving us money. It's just everyday people who want to help and redistribute to help pay someone's rent, to help pay for diabetes medication, which is really amazing and powerful. And um, I mean, in the few months we were founded in July, so kind of right in the middle of the pandemic, um, since we were founded, we've been able to redistribute over $45,000 to people, um, which is really amazing. But there are so many more people in need. Um, so I think that will that is the biggest limitation. But I also want to be careful and not say, oh, it's because people aren't donating enough to us. Of course, we want more donations. Of course, we want more support. But the need is there because there's no social support net for, for people. I mean, we got $1,200 at the beginning of the nine-month-long pandemic. I mean, come on. Um, so I feel like uh, mutual aid is very powerful. I am very much in support of mutual aid funds, mutual aid networks, things like bail funds. But they're very temporary solutions. I mean, bail funds in theory shouldn't exist because bail shouldn't exist. Something like a mutual aid fund shouldn't exist because no one should have trouble paying their rent or fear that they're going to be evicted. Um, I mean, you might have seen this. The UCLA School of Public Health came out with a study uh, pretty recently that found that 10,000 COVID-19 deaths were due to evictions and people aren't even supposed to be being evicted during the pandemic. I mean, that's disgusting. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest, I guess you would call it limitation of mutual aid funds is that um, they need to exist uh, in the system that we have right now, because far, far too often, um, what is supposed to be our social security uh, uh, nets fail people. Um, and nonprofits, some of whom are very important and provide really great support, just can't serve everyone or have so many restrictions that people who are formerly incarcerated just can't access those services. Um, I mean, not to mention that there's so many government restrictions in terms of access to SNAP benefits, access to public housing that differently impact formerly incarcerated, formerly caged people, as Jamil said. Um, as uh, compared to people without felony convictions. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest uh, limitation is just that there will always be a huge need. Mutual aid funds should not have to fulfill that need um, because it's just community members helping community members pay their rent, pay for insulin medication, HIV medication, probation and parole fees. Um, so yeah, I guess that's the biggest 
limitation, not necessarily in terms of how we do work, but just that um, I'm very pleased with the work we've done, but also frustrated that we have to exist, (laughs) essentially. Yeah, I wanted to um, dive a little bit deeper into that, especially in the unique circumstances that we're in now with COVID-19. And there's undoubtedly a connection between COVID cases and the incarceration system and locking people up, um, cash bail system um, is problematic in general, but especially in when you look through the lens of the pandemic. And so I wanted to ask, like you say, um, mutual aid should be temporary. It shouldn't have to fill the void that the government should be filling. So um, maybe not maybe not your two organizations specifically, but um, you can speak it to it more specifically, but just mutual aid in general, what gap do you feel that it fills um, in terms of achieving structural change um, in ways that maybe the government isn't operating? Like what void do you feel that mutual aid fills um, in in that capacity? Um, Like I said, um, I think I mentioned this earlier that we aim to disrupt a system that is much better funded and much more powerful than our little bail fund or the little bail funds around the country. So what I think it what I think it does is it doesn't slow it down. It doesn't even make a dent, to be honest. Like um just for example, in May or June of this in June of this year, the sheriff here in Nashville, sheriff said that he was his goal was to reduce the decrease the population of the jails to under a thousand. Um, as of yesterday, it was one thousand seven hundred fifty people in the COVID infested jails of Nashville. Another another benefit I think it has when we make someone's bail is they get to they get to try to fight it from out from outside, right? They 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 don't have to lose their job. They don't have to find themselves in a situation where they might lose custody of their child, right? And it's it's usually for it's it's for the benefit of everyone because the public, if if someone goes to prison, your tax dollars are gonna pay thirty grand a year for those people to be held in prison, right? For the whole year. So if we make a bill that's two thousand dollars or less, not only does it help the family member, but I think it helps society and the local governments overall. I don't think it helps as much as it could. You know, I'll just I'll just put it like that. Like as it relates to bail, like why like uh, like Abaki was saying, bail money bail shouldn't exist. And it's it's illegal. When your bail is set, you are that's a hearing. That's your, that's a hearing, right? But you don't you don't um you don't have an attorney there. They just set a bail for you at some crazy rate that you can't pay. You don't have an attorney, and then when you have a preliminary hearing, they don't discuss reducing that bail at all, right? So this is a huge this this clogs up the system. They they have to spend a whole lot more money than they would if they weren't charging people for like I'm not sure how many states it is at this point, but half the states have legalized marijuana and they're profiting from it 
but they're still charging people. <laughs> they're still charging people and sentencing people to jail for this, right? Why they make money, millions of dollars, billions probably. So as far as the, the benefits, I'm not, I'm not sure how much we are making a dent, if that makes sense. And I'm not sure how much we're helping. I would say that one of the ways that mutual aid funds and bail funds are making a dent, though, is that um, obviously people who themselves or their families have been involved with the criminal legal system know it's fucked up, know it's violent, know that it, it yeah, it's, it's just violent. It's evil, essentially. Um, but a lot of people who don't exist within those systems, white people, higher income people, uh, don't know that. But I think that with mutual aid funds, with bail funds, with their growing popularity, with people wanting to donate to them, with people wanting to be involved, I think that that helps raise awareness of um, and get solidarity with with currently incarcerated people or currently caged people, with people involved with the criminal legal system. Um, and I think that that awareness is really important for slowly shifting the needle. I mean, even the popularity of phrases like abolish prisons, defund the police on the national scale, I think is even if it's, you know, going to be very, very slow changes on the national level, I still think it's pretty powerful that people are even aware of um, kind of uh, how evil these systems are, essentially. And so I think that's one thing that mutual aid funds and bail funds can do kind of on the, I don't know what you'd call it, policy advocacy sides of things. Um, and then uh, another thing I think is important about mutual aid funds is that it challenges, um, I don't know how to say this, I guess it challenges kind of the hierarchy of philanthropy or of the nonprofit world that we typically see of uh, who deserves care, who deserves safety, who deserves our support, essentially. Um, and uh, I mean, it's essentially like crowdfunding. So our, if our average donation is about, you know, 30-ish bucks, that's not going to pay someone's rent. But if you get, you know, hundreds of people to donate, that's pretty powerful in terms of as opposed to just one foundation that got, you know, government funding to redistribute to who they, who they deem is worthy. Um, uh, you know, we're able to redistribute to a broader range of people because it is kind of that crowdfunded system of care. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I think that's powerful. And I think that that helps, uh, sh again, slowly, it's not going to create, you know, institutional change overnight, it's not going to eliminate racism or, or abolish prisons. But I do think that creating these small pockets of um, communities of solidarity, communities of care is really powerful and challenging and getting people to think about uh, challenging the institutions that we live within. Um, yeah, so I think that even if it's very, very slow change, uh, it is, bail funds are really important um, and mutual aid funds are really important in the time being. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, um, I'm sure I'll have to remind either of you all, but um, this year has been absolutely crazy, right? Um, I mentioned the National Bail Fund Network earlier, right? This is, they just host the convenings and they try to provide supports to all of the bail funds within the network. 
just read an article yesterday that said they received $80 million in donations in June, in June, in one month, right? So the murders of George Floyd, the murders of Breonna Taylor, the social, very necessary social uprisings in this country over the summer. And I I told uh, in our um, weekly wrap-up check-in with the um, bail fund team, I was just like, to my understanding, the bail fund network doesn't make bills. So are they redistributing that $80 million that they got in June? And I, I kind of have developed somewhat of a reputation within the nonprofit sector of asking the hard questions. And I just want to know because it I keep hearing this. We want to center the voices of formerly caged people. We want to center the voices of, and I'm, and I'm always asking, like, well, to what extent? What does that mean? Do you really want to know? Because I can get you hip real quick. I can just put you on point of where the money needs to go, what's up, and, you know, don't just say that if you don't really mean it, right? Because I, I legit want to know, like, $80 million? I think y'all can give a million dollars to each of the bail funds. There's only, like, 86 the people that's actually making the bills, so... Right. And, and we don't want to co-opt the system. Right. So it is very powerful. Right. And um, things like this, bail funds, almost all of them were only making minimal bills before the social unrest took place over the course of this year. Right. All of them received huge influxes of money. Right. Now, how much of an impact that money is having, it shouldn't be determined by people who are not directly system impacted. Right. That's a that's 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 a problem. Another reason why I really appreciated learning about the establishment of the St. Louis Reentry Collective, because I know that Harvey was just his idea. Right. Harvey is a person that just got out. He just uh, celebrated his first year out in the past week. Right. So that can is what I think is, you know, has the most powerful impact. When you are having these systems that these um, mutual aid uh, bail funds being led by people who who actually know what's up, who've actually been impacted by the injustices that institutions fight tooth and nail to keep in place. Yeah, I love that both you guys spoke on like where the power actually comes from and then it comes from people that actually know that are actually being most directly affected by the issues um, and problems in society. Um, and I think I just want to add in this comment because when I think about like what it means for me to be a member in my community and like how inspiring it is, like every time I go out and do something and get like actually involved to see, wow, we can really come together. We can have a collectivist attitude and really enact change. So that's something we just really want our reader or our listeners to really grasp and, um, kind of just think about, reflect on that yourself and see where uh, you can get involved. Um, and that's kind of what we want to finish up our last question with. Um, we would like to know, like, how does somebody get involved with your efforts or efforts that you're dealing with right now or um, maybe efforts um, and organizations you've been a part of um, in the past? Sure. So for people located in St. Louis, uh, you can definitely get involved with the STL Reentry Collective, which both coordinates the Reentry Mutual Aid Fund, which I was talking about today. And then our other huge project is uh, we spent about a year creating a reentry resource guide 
that was actually written and edited uh, by uh, formerly incarcerated people, currently incarcerated people, um, as well as social work practitioners and WashU students. So it was really kind of a community effort to create. Um, it's available online and we've been working very hard to get it available in prisons. That has been a lot more difficult than I think um, uh, we anticipated. Well, I guess we anticipated it would be very difficult, but it's taking longer than we would like. So we're trying to get it available in all of the prison libraries uh, across the prisons in Missouri. But uh, for people who want to get involved, there's a few different ways. Um, one is to host fundraisers for us. A lot of people who are artists or musicians have hosted events or fundraisers where all the money or part of the money goes to the Reentry Collective. Um, and all of that, uh, as I've talked about, is quickly redistributed to folks in the community. Um, and then the other way is that we're actually looking for volunteers right now to get more involved, both with fundraising, uh, distributing the guide, and then we just created a newsletter that um, is going to be a monthly newsletter educating folks on reentry and incarceration related issues in our community and includes community resources as well. Um, so yeah, I guess volunteering, we're looking for volunteers right now, uh, and then hosting fundraisers for us. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook for just kind of regular updates on what we're doing. Um, and then the other group I'll, pl I'll plug is the Prison Education Project, which is where Jamil and I know each other from. Uh, so I worked for them for two years. Um, they're a really great organization and are in the last year have been trying really hard to develop their reentry support for, for their students once they're released. Um, and uh, that's also, especially for WashU students, that's a great opportunity to volunteer as a tutor or to do your work study with Prison Education Project. Um, or again, donate or find them on social media. Yeah. Um, how to get involved. Uh, to me, I, I think it's a whole lot more than just donating some money, right? So I think people, particularly young college students in a place like St. Louis where structural racial violence is, legendary to, to be quite frank with you get outside there watch your bubble I, I got an opportunity to talk to the vanderbilt university students a couple times over the past couple months and i i did my best to encourage them to get outside their bubble you know uh, 37208 the zip code this adjacent to the beautiful vanderbilt campus is the most incarcerated zip code in the country um st louis <laughs> Go to North City where I grew up, you know, find an organization to give your time to. Um, I, I know that they have city faces or whatever, and they go down to the projects or whatever, to um, to the Peabody's or whatever. But give your time. And if whatever you can do to fight institutional bigotry, just do that. Like, it's no reason why the prison education project budget should be cut by 25%. I mean, what the hell, right? Like students have a whole lot of power, right? Student organizations have a whole lot of power, always have, right? So when you learn of something that's wildly unjust, you know, put some time and energy behind it, post about it, talk to your friends about it, and apply pressure to these uh, institutions and these gatekeepers who are just really obviously disconnected from the realities that most people have to live with right so that's what i think i would encourage people to how to get involved right 
it, and it doesn't require a lot of your time. I understand how how difficult it is to be trying to get through semesters and finals and different things like that, right? But give your time. You, when you're scrolling, you know, when you're on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you know, repost things, you know, and then try to change the hearts and minds of the people that's right up on you. It's a lot of social capital on that campus at WashU, right? A lot of really affluent, disconnected people, right? So I think it, you know, take it, take the initiative to um, get them woke, if you will. You know, try to make sure that the people that you sit in those classroom spaces with don't leave out of them as culturally clueless as they came in. Because I, I heard some things in those classrooms that just made me want to, um, you know, just walk out or uh, have a, a one-on-one conversation with some of these people because they they honestly don't know. And that's what I learned. A lot of people just legitimately, they aren't necessarily racist or bigots. They just came up in a certain way and they completely disconnected. So when you had the opportunity to make change in the hearts and the minds of those people, do that. And I think that'll, um, that'll do some good. Well, thank you so much, Jamil and Abaki, for joining us. Um, this has been incredibly insightful, and I've definitely taken away a lot from this conversation, so I'm sure our listeners, it'll be the same for them as well. Um, but yeah, everything from the corruption within the bail system and the criminal legal system, Jamil, as you pointed out, um, to Abaki, the work that you do with the STL Reentry Collective, and just centering the voices and visions of formerly caged people. We really appreciate you all coming on and speaking with us. To our listeners, please check out our website. We'll have a bunch of resources up there, such as information on the history of mutual aid, the nonprofit industrial complex, the role of the bail system perpetuating the cycle of incarceration, and more. So be sure to check those resources out. Be sure to really continue to educate yourself and get involved in these ways that um, Jamil and Abaki outlined. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on, two of you, and we will see, or I guess we won't see, but we'll connect with our listeners again next week.